walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 36. I'm Dave Witz. Nobody asked me my name. What do you think of when you think of Galicia? Maybe the idyllic, peaceful setting, wooded, verdant, lush, and quiet. Maybe the eucalyptus trees towering overhead, maintaining a silent canopy over the wide footpath below. Maybe bagpipes and pulpo, small stone villages, and the sudden appearance of a tilde over Camino. It's a striking, memorable setting to see a pilgrimage conclude, perhaps in part because it is cast in an air of mystery, so long secluded, isolated from most of Western Europe, despite its turn in the spotlight. In mainstream pilgrimage accounts, the stories are very familiar, if equally very shallow, not unlike, it's worth noting, the stories of St. James himself. In this episode, I go deeper into the stories surrounding Galicia. It's one of my favorite kinds of episodes. I guarantee that you are going to learn some interesting new details about the region, as I did. Up first is Dr. Sharif Gemi, author of Galicia, A Concise History. You know the common story we hear and tell about Galicia's Celtic past? Well, about that. Sharif unpacks some of the complexities behind those origin stories, and then ultimately brings us up to the present, and the resurgence of Galician identity. He's followed by Dr. Kristen Valentine, who spent time in Galicia in the 1980s and 90s, pursuing ethnographic research into a number of folk beliefs, most notably for our purposes, the phenomenon of romerias, or local, smaller-scale pilgrimages. We focus on two, Muxia, where many pilgrims conclude their longer journey, having continued past Santiago, and Teixido. The latter is less known, but quite significant, and accessible via the Ruto do Mar, an unofficial variant that extends along the coast between Ribadeo on the Camino del Norte and Ferrol, the starting point of the Camino Inglés. Self-serving plug, did you know there's a description of the Ruta do Mar in my new guidebook on the Camino Inglés? Now you do. It's Secrets of Galicia Revealed, or something like that. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Sharif Gami is a now-retired professor with numerous historical works to his credit on subjects ranging from hippies to migrants to refugees, and more relevant to our purposes, he is the author of Galicia, A Concise History, and he joins me now to discuss this very green northwest corner of Spain. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be able to speak with you, and I want to start by looking at the origins of some cultural traditions in Galicia, and one of the dominant stories related to Galicia's origins is the role of Celtic people sweeping into the region nearly three millennia ago at this point. So what does the historic record say about Celtic Galicia? What do we really know about it? Well, you're using one of those great words that people have the more the argument has gone on, the less clear things have become. I tend towards what's sometimes called Kelto-skepticism. Not so much saying that Celts never existed, 
but more questioning what we're doing with that word, why we're hanging on to that word with such uh, ferocity. I suppose I should also say that when I was a professional historian, I was a specialist in the 19th century and the 20th century. And looking at ancient history always looks very different. And the thing we modern historians notice is just how tenuous the information is. You know, you're dealing with little scraps and strands Whereas if you're looking at the 19th century, you've got very solid things like censuses and newspapers that you can base yourself on. But the point that's made by a lot of professional historians is that very basic one. There was no passport for the Celts. There was no language school for learning a Celtic language. There was no manifesto. There was no anthem. And we need to be very careful about using that word as though we're talking about a nation or a federation. Somewhere in my book, I do talk about the technologies of identity. And what I mean by that are things we take for granted in the modern world. Things like, okay, the internet, the press, the school, mass literacy, all those sorts of things. And none of them were available 4,000, 5,000 years ago. So we use that word Celt, but we should use it very cautiously. One, again, very good rejoinder for people who really want to say, I am a Celt, I believe in the Celts, is to point out that the Celts themselves, the ancient Celts, never used that word to describe themselves. And we're not quite sure what word they would use. I mean, that's open for a debate. But as far as we can see, identities in the ancient era were very localized. There was a sort of patchwork of identities. And on top of that, all right, there is this thing we call Celtic. Oh, another another point made by Celtosceptics, which I think makes sense, is there tend to be three ways of defining Celts. You can define them by their language, you can define them by certain religious practices, and you can define them by a certain artwork, those swirling, beautiful things that we see. The problem is that those three never quite coincide. You'll find some areas with two of them or some areas with one of them and maybe a few areas with all three of them. But they're spread across Europe in different ways. When I spoke to Barry Cunliffe about this, Barry Cunliffe was suggesting what we should understand with that word Celt is it's a sort of an elite culture which is existing in ancient Europe. And OK, if you wanted to engage in the equivalent of international politics or international trade, you'd need a bit of Celtic language. If you were a prestigious chieftain, you probably wanted what we would call Celtic paraphernalia, such as the Celtic sword, you know, Celtic designs. Maybe if you were particularly interested in religion, you'd want to find out what were the most prestigious forms of religion around in, in ancient Europe, and you'd latch onto them. And the example I use in my book, which, you know, 10 years later, I still think stands up. If we see a, a Saudi sheikh, driving a German BMW, we don't say, aha, he's German. It's the same with a Galician chieftain wielding a Celtic sword. We, we should hold back from saying, aha, Celtic. So this sort of thing of tell me about the Celtic invasion, I don't think there was something like D-Day, you know, masses of troops directed towards this northwest corner of Galicia. Instead, there was some sort of general movement. There may have been some fights on the way. There may have been some rivalries. But Apparently, there was some migration, maybe from Ireland, maybe from Wales. Apparently, the immigrants influenced the local people. But the terms of that sort of debate, the terms of that exchange are very, very difficult to be certain about. But it's a great tourism marketing strategy. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and Galicia is an under-resourced region, and it has to make use of what it's got.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there might be dispute about the Celts, but certainly we know that Christianity did reach Galicia, though it did arrive there later than it did in many other parts of Western Europe. What delayed its arrival there, and what was distinct about its integration into the region of Galicia? I think just that Galicia was very far away from the mainstream of Europe. It was distant. There weren't motorways. It took a, a long time to get there. And then, of course, secondly, the Muslim presence, the, the, Muslim arri- the arrival of Muslims in Spain certainly blocked Spain off the whole of the Spanish peninsula off currents within Europe. So that's the reason it took a long time to get there. What was particular about the way it arrived, I think, has got to be put in the the context of the reconquest and this long five, six centuries long process by which Muslim powers are forced out from the north of Spain down towards the centre and eventually just towards the south. And in that process, there is a hardening of a Christian attitude and Galicia partly, partly through accident, is at the centre of that movement by the discovery, in inverted commas, of that tomb at Santiago de Compostela. I mean, that's the turning point, really. And probably, if we want to hang something on where we say the question people ask in Wales, actually, is when was Wales? When does it start as a conscious nation? Well, probably that process begins in Galicia with the discovery of the tomb at uh, Santiago de Compostela, or what becomes Santiago de Compostela. Is there a historic explanation for why, out of all the places in the world, the Santiago miracle got situated in Santiago de Compostela? I do rehearse one in my book, and I'm afraid it's a rather negative one. It was that simply Rome wasn't available. It was cut off by wars. (laughs) So, you know, in a sense, the Catholic Church was looking for another relatively easy access site to get to. And Galicia fulfilled it. It was relatively peaceful by that point. It may also have been that the distance, you know, that this is the the place at the end of the earth, uh, Finisterra, you know, that may have lent a bit of romance to Galicia as well, and uh, attracted pilgrims. And then there was a, a sort of snowball effect. I mean, once some people had done it, more people wanted to do that walk as well. It acquired its own prestige until access to Rome was revived. Once it becomes easier to access Rome by about 1500, Galicia, the context has changed. Galicia is no longer on that sort of main route. It's now become again a sub route, a side route instead. You quote William Marquez's statement that no one ever traveled to Compostela in search of knowledge. What does that mean? Yes, I'm sorry if, if out of context that sounds rather dismissive. It's simply that Galicia was, I think, typical of a certain form of medieval Christianity, where the emphasis was very much on the concrete. This was the tomb. The bones were there. It's very basic. It's very primitive. It's sort of tactile. And therefore, in medieval Christianity, there was this cult of objects which were said to be, you know, the knuckles of Christ, the bones of the apostles, things like that. There was also scepticism, you know, Chaucer was poking fun at this in the the 13th century. Not everyone believed in it, but it's the way that Christianity worked at that time. What is more significant, though, I mean, you can understand why that was there in Santiago. That's that, if you like, normal for medieval Europe. What is significant, though, is Christianity there never seems to also create an intellectual current, or not till much, much later. Galician Christianity seems for a long time to remain 
emotional and tactile and non-intellectual. You know, that seems to create a mould for Galician Christianity for a while. Can you speculate on why that distinct manifestation of Christianity played out? Just because I'm afraid by the 16th century, Galicia is back to being a poor, unfashionable, out-of-the-way place, and <laughs> any cleric with ambition is going to say, right, you know, I'm, I'm, let's get to Madrid, <laughs> you know, let's get to somewhere important, or let's get to Toledo. Why should I stay in this backwater? I think it was self-reinforcing, really. I often see fairly concise explanations for why that decline took place. And you mentioned Rome comes back into the picture. I often see references to the Protestant Reformation and then down the road further the Enlightenment. Do those explain it or are there other reasons why Santiago falls out of prominence? Well, they're all the, the big prominent explanations. People remain Christian, people remain sincere Christians, but Christianity does become, particularly after the Reformation, a book-based religion. You know, it's the religion of the Bible. You don't need to go and have that physical, tactile sensation of touching something or being next to something that has this immediate physical relationship with an apostle or a saint. Um, the newer Christianity emphasizes something much more individual, perhaps with the guidance of a priest or some other knowledgeable person. Um, that's what really counts, you know, what you're doing in your head day by day, rather than the one-off exceptional tactile experience. So, yeah, certainly one would expect the Reformation and the Enlightenment to reinforce those sorts of movements. In most of the pilgrimage accounts that I read about Santiago and Galicia, they go very deeply into the boom, and then they describe sort of the tailing off in the 14th, 15th centuries, and then they fast forward to the 20th. And so I have a blind spot when it comes to what's happening in Galicia after the boom and before we get into the modern era. What was happening there? Well, to some extent, this is a story of marginalization that Galicia doesn't seem very important. That was one of the few things, actually, that Galician historians did challenge me on. And some of them do talk about a boom, an economic boom in the 17th and 18th centuries. Perhaps that's true, but certainly in terms of political importance, Galicia is of little significance in these centuries. And by the 19th century, what makes Galicia very different is it becomes a land of emigration. It's a land to get out of. I suppose it's a joke. It's not that funny a joke, but apparently the 19th century, a joke used to circulate, what's the biggest Galician town? And the answer was Buenos Aires, because that was the town where most <laughs> Galicians were congregated. Um, there was this, it's a sort of almost like an early version of globalization. Um, Galicians were beginning to think about both sides of the Atlantic, east and west, you know. And some people were making that journey not just once in their lifetime, but four or five times. You know, they really were flitting back and forth. And people on both sides were aware of the homeland and the exiles. And there was this sort of debate going on between them. I think at one point there were two million Galicians abroad. And that was almost the equivalent of the number of Galicians in Galicia itself. I mean, they really were an emigrant nation. They were, they were fishing, but above all, they were, they were looking for work. And Latin America, particularly Argentina, tended to be the place they went to. So we will fast forward now into the 20th century. And of course, Spanish history in the 20th century is dominated by Franco. And Franco is a son of Galicia, of Ferrol. 
And I've heard different accounts of his impact on Galicia. From your perspective, how was Galicia affected or changed by Franco? Franco was born in El Farol, and I have read a number of biographies of him. There's very little reference to Franco as a son of Galicia. Galicians are meant to have a particularly dry form of irony. And once or twice, Franco is accused of, if you'd be like, talking like a Galician because he's being very bitter and very ironic and very sarcastic. But that's about it. You know, it's one or two trace elements like that. And in my book, I sort of set up a contrast between A Coruña, which is this big cosmopolitan port where, okay, lots of people are leaving for other places, but equally, lots of people are entering. And so A Coruña becomes a sort of political, intellectual centre, and above all, a centre of dissident thought, Republicans, socialists, anarchists, communists, and even Galician nationalists always have a base in Acarunia. Not permanently, but Acarunia is vital for those movements. El Farol is almost like the mirror image. It's a much quieter port. It's principally a military port. And by being a military port, it's linked to the big themes of Spanish patriotism. And that's the atmosphere that Franco grows up in. Galicia doesn't mean much to him. I mean, maybe you could link his very dogmatic Catholicism with Galicia, but even in Galicia, things were changing. And by 1975, Galician priests were speaking up against Franco, not for him. He doesn't take much from Galicia, and he doesn't, you can't say never, because the man lives for a long time, but he very, very rarely makes use of any sort of Galician connection. Just speculating, Franco could have looked at Galicia and said, that's an acceptable form of regional culture. It's not like the Basque Country. It's not like, above all, the worst enemy, Catalonia, which was the unacceptable form of regional culture. Franco could have looked at there and said, that's conservative, Catholic, stable. That's the sort of regional culture we can tolerate. Certainly in Galicia, there isn't the ferocious repression of regional culture that you get in the Basque Country and you get in Catalonia. It's not popular, at least in the first stages of Francoism in the 1950s. It's not the way to get a job and to get on, but it's tolerated, I think. You could put it that way. Tolerated half-heartedly, maybe, but it doesn't suffer that sort of repression. And that leads me into the other question that I wanted to ask you about the 20th century and 21st. We're living in a moment of significant push for Catalonian independence, and that follows the Basque push over the last several decades. Is this going to happen in Galicia? Are we going to see a Galician push for a Galician state? Or for the reasons you've already mentioned, are Galicians more comfortable with the status quo and remaining part of Spain? In terms of brutal statistics, you'd probably be drawn to say that Galician nationalism has never attracted the majority. I mean, no matter what sort of statistics you look at or what you're measuring, you would never be able to argue, well, a majority of Galicians want independence. One interesting difference if you compare the three regions, I think I'm right on this. I learned it from a sociolinguist. In the Basque country, and particularly in Catalonia, people tend to be quite militant about the language. And if they've learnt Basque or Catalan, they want to speak it 100%. They want to read it. They want to watch television, you know, the whole thing. Sometimes they can't. Sometimes they have to compromise, but they tend to take that approach. Galicia is unusual. Many people in Galicia are bilingual, effectively, and they will do what's called code switching. They will start a sentence in Castilian Spanish and they'll end it in Gallego. And that's unusual. 
presumably they think that certain phrases sound better in Gallego and certain phrases sound better in Castilian and they don't mind mixing them. Okay, the body and soul Galician nationalists won't do that. They will take that approach of I'm speaking Gallego and only Gallego and nothing else. But ordinary Galicians will take a much more pragmatic approach that far. A story I've heard from several researchers who wanted to research Galicia, painstakingly learnt Gallego, went to Galicia, found some people to interview, began speaking in Gallego, and were immediately met with a sort of frown of, oh, you want to speak in Gallego? Why? And usually the interviewee would then say, yeah, but we're going to be talking about big, important things, so let's talk into Castilian instead, which, you're right, you could say was a sort of inferiority complex. You could link it to things like that. But it may be that Gallego is just seen as a domestic language, a private language, and public communication should be conducted in Castilian. So the three movements, you often do get comparisons of Catalonia, Basque Country, Galicia, but Galicia seems different in some ways. I suppose if I was going to correct anything in the book, the last chapter is probably a bit too optimistic, sort of anticipating a rise of left-wing movements and Galician nationalism merging together and forming some sort of rough and ready uh, majority there. And that didn't happen. The right has kept on to its strongholds, it's using its networks, it's using its patronage, and it's not moving. So the chances of any immediate rise in a call for Galician independence, I think is pretty unlikely maybe 10 or 20 years down the road. But while the PP stays in power, the Parti Populaire, there's not much chance, I think, of outright calls for independence. Though it's got to be said, the PP has, you referred to this just a few moments ago, the PP has been very successful in manufacturing and developing not just a tourist-friendly image of Galicia, but an everyday, low-level, low-energy, but acceptable version of Galicia. People can feel quite comfortable about being Galician now. People can feel quite proud of their region, can identify a few things distinctive, all right, maybe bagpipes, maybe sorts of wine, of course, the, the trail, you know, all, all things like this. And they're accepted within the region. And there is no formal prejudice against somebody speaking Gallego in public. You mentioned when we were getting started that you have been thinking about going back to Galicia. What's your favorite place to visit? Oh, definitely A Coruña. I think that's a tremendous city. I love it as well that you can look at the geography of it and you can almost see it as a series of concentric rings and you can identify this sort of Roman port and then a medieval section and then an early modern section and then there's vast suburbs sprawling out further. And I like the sort of open-mindedness of Acarunia. You do still have that feeling. I think somewhere in the book I say, it's open to the seven seas and they all come there. And the university is a thriving one. I like also the peculiarity of Acarunia. It's the only city I can think of, a genuine modern European city that has a beach. And not just a tiny beach, but you know, a long beach. That sort of appeals to me as well. Santiago is wonderful for that medieval centre. It's a really nice walk through there. And although I'm not a Catholic myself, I sort of like the Catholicism in Santiago. The other thing that struck me about Santiago is the way you could walk down a, a sort of modern bustling street and there in the corner, there would be this little medieval statue or shrine or artifact. And it was just part of everyday life. You know, there wasn't a plaque or anything. You had to spot it and then you could sort of walk by it again. And, you know, that cliche, the people in general are friendly, polite, welcoming, 
they're nice people. Sherry, thank you very much for speaking with me. It has been a pleasure. Dave, thank you very much for the invitation. Kristen Valentine is Professor Emerita at Arizona State University's Hugh Downs School of Human Communication. Her research centers on fieldwork-based ethnographies of cultural performances, and that fieldwork has included multiple long stints in Galicia. And I'm excited to speak with her about that now. Thank you for joining me, Kristen. I'm glad to do that. I like talking about Galicia. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Could you start, before we actually get into Galicia, by describing your research methods? How have you, and and I should note your husband as well, is part of this work. How have the two of you approached your study of Galician storytelling and folk traditions? I was the one that conducted the major field work once we got there, using Castilian Spanish and some Gallegan that I picked up. Then Jean and I always did the background research together, and then after the field work, we team up to write for publication in English language journals and book chapters. I've had a long interest in folklore and the performance of culture, and I really wanted to live in Spain because we'd been taking Spanish for a number of years. And we got interested in Galicia through Justo Alarcón, who's a professor of Spanish at Arizona State, where we worked. And at a party one night, he said, if you want to learn about folklore in Spain, the place to go is my birthplace, Galicia. We looked, we couldn't find any published English language research. So as academics, new ground for research turns up. And during a sabbatical year in 1982 and 83, we decided to go. I want to add something else, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of people don't realize that the resurgence of interest in Gallegan folklore happened after the death of Francisco Franco in 1975. Mm -hmm. Because during his dictatorship, the Spanish government actively discouraged regional identities as a way of uniting the country after the Spanish War. And so regional languages and literatures, including Gallegan, were officially proscribed, although they continue to be spoken. Oddly enough, or interestingly enough, Franco was born in Galicia. But when he became dictator to the whole country, he said, okay, we're not going to do that. We're all going to be Spaniards together. So after Franco died and regional autonomy was established, that would have been 1978, long-suppressed regionalism rose throughout Spain. And from 1978 on, the Gallegan language and traditional folklore narratives were taught in the schools. When we got to Santiago de Compostela for this first year's fieldwork, we found, this was 82, 83, mm-hmm. we found bookstore windows displaying colorful paperback books in Spanish or Gallegan, containing Gallegan legends, proverbs, songs, description of life in the tiny rural settlements called aldeas. So we bought these books and began to immerse ourselves in the stories, only to discover that all of these bright, 
new book jackets, camouflage pre-Franco collections hmm. of legends and folk tales and folk songs. There was nothing post-Franco, but we could use them starting conversations with people to tell us their versions of the stories now, that is, as of 1983-83, after Franco's death. I was particularly interested in women's stories. And at first, I thought I would be interested in the stories of St. James. Mm -hmm. So I asked women about their version of the stories of St. James, who obviously was buried, or at least thought to be buried, in Santiago. And to a person, they said, oh, you want to know about St. James? Ask my brother, my father, the priest, my uncle. It's the men that know those things. Hmm. So I said, what do you want to talk about? After I get to know them, of course, they would say, well, we like to talk about when we go to the Romarias. Aha, we now have something we think might be new to an audience interested in Galicia. Now, should I define Romarias? Yeah, let's talk about that, because it certainly is connected to the larger pilgrimage to Santiago, but it's more specific and more narrow. So what are they? I would describe them as pilgrimages to a holy site. And Romaria, it's not to Rome, hence the name Romaria, but to holy sites in Galicia. So think about this. One might think of the Camino to the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela as a giant Romeria. Mm -hmm. It's a pilgrimage to a holy site. We were interested, because a lot of people talk about Santiago, we were interested in some of these smaller areas where people go. What did you learn about them? Why are they so prominent in Galicia, and what purpose do they serve? Good question. <laughs> I'm on an email with our friend Mercedes, who lives in Galicia, and she was a teacher of English. So she was fluent in Spanish, Gallegan, and English. And so I asked her, how would you answer this question? Because I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> and she said, they're still really popular because they include religion. Most of the people there are Catholic. Include food. And I don't know if you've ever had them, but often at the Romerias, you're served pulpo, which is octopus, mm -hmm. sprinkled with paprika and served on cardboard with, of course, ribero or other <laughs> wine and music and sometimes cultural dances in their 18th century Gaigan costumes. They also have really good reasons to stop hard work or village work for a day to have fun with their families and friends and to eat all the good food they bring with them. <laughs> and the women told us that they often compete with each other to see who's brought the best empanadas. When we asked why they go, because we asked the same question, we often got these answers. It can't hurt might help. <laughs> My family wants me to go, or we get to see the rest of the family who work far away. And these events come up every year, and they're sanctioned, and I think welcomed respite from that continuous hard work. Gaigans are hard workers. And also, they go often with an aim. They've got an illness, 
or their animals have an illness, or a relative is not feeling well, or something's going on with one of the children, and they don't feel they have much control over those events. So when life is chancy, as is especially true for sailors and farmers, one needs all the extra help they can get. Mm -hmm. So they'll come, they'll go to the church, they'll light a candle, and often leave wax ex votos, which represent the afflicted body part. So you might leave a kidney or a leg or an arm or a head or an animal, a pig or a cow, on whose health the family depends. I think that's why people participate. Did you ever figure out in your research why there is this gendered component to it? Why men were linked with Compostela and women were linked more with the local Romarias? The story that I started off with was St. James, since that was my first reason for going there. And I got nowhere with that idea. They certainly would talk about what they might do at this Grand Romaria, which is on the 25th of July, St. James Day. And they might talk about going to those and some of the participants, but the stories they told were much more personal. That women want to talk about personal things, their family, their children, their animals, their property. They didn't see themselves as carriers of history. That was left to the men. Well, I want to talk to you about a couple of those smaller Romarias in particular. I talk about Compostela all the time, but a lot of pilgrims who walked Santiago will continue to Muxia. And I think they don't always know why. <laughs> it's just one more place to walk to after Finisterre. One more day, they don't have to go home. But Muthia is a Romaria destination in its own right. What makes it so? Very popular. Every time we went, we went three different times crowded with Gallegans. We didn't see people who weren't Gallegans there, at least when we were there. Maybe they go there now. It's a huge difference now. Lots of foreigners that go. Yeah, the walking pilgrimage now, many people walk past Santiago, and they go to Finisterre, and then on to Muxia. That's new to me. We were the only English-speaking people in the whole place. But the tradition has it that these huge stones have two different purposes. So you go for two different reasons. One is health, and the other is to ask for intercession from the Virgin, la Virgen de la Barca, our Virgin of the boat. Because, and this is my impression as well, the boat's huge stones, one looks like a sail, one looks like a tiller, and one really looks like the overturned hull of a boat. Hmm. So the story that they told us when we asked, why are these important stones? Well, the Virgin Mary used it when she sailed to Spain. So I said, the Virgin Mary was there? And they said, oh, yes. She came because the Apostle James was really discouraged, and he hasn't made many converts to Christianity. And he'd used the scallop shell to baptize but he only made four or five converts, and he was just terribly discouraged. So the Virgin Mary sails there in her stone boat and appears to him and says, you're going to succeed. It may not be right here, but you're going to succeed. So the stone boat comes into Gallegan legends at least three times, probably more. But one stone boat is for the Virgin Mary at Moshea, 
one stone that looks like a boat off of Toshido, and then the story of St. James. So the idea of a stone boat turns up at least three, perhaps more times. Now, it becomes a popular pilgrimage site, venerated especially by sailors, because it's right there on the Costa del Morte, where many ships have gone aground. So it's the patron saint of sailors. But the other part is that one of the stones is sort of kidney-shaped. So if you've got renal illness, we watch people crawling underneath that stone and then rubbing the part of their body where the kidneys were, rubbing it against the stone, hoping that there would be a cure for that. And then we watched one time a woman who was hoping for intercession, we assume, went all the way around the church on her knees over and over again until they were bleeding. Merthedis was with us, and she said it's as though her suffering would make the Virgin feel sorry for her and help whatever issue it was that she had. So we have both the curing of an illness and intercession for the others, other reasons that people go. Back at the stones, each of the times that we were there, the first time we heard this low, moaning, thumping sound. And one of the large stones, about 25 people were jumping up and down on it in unison on the rock. It was about nine meters long. It was the ship's sail that they were on. It was on a rock underneath somehow so that it could move. And the sound made by the rhythmic jumping, they told us, is a sign that the Virgin is listening to the prayers of the faithful. So this whole cycle of stories about the Virgin's arrival in Mushia is always part of the cycle of stories that are connected to St. James, as they're told in the books now that are written post-Franco and are told to us by all the people that we talk to. They connect Mushia with St. James. So it must explain why the pilgrimages now include Mushia Mushia would be very different for you now. The good news I have to share is that Teishido is probably the same. Not visited by many pilgrims. It's well outside the frame of the major pilgrimage routes that people are following. So while many people listening are familiar with Mushia, most of them have no idea about Teishido. Oh, well, I'll tell you why it's especially (laughs) important. Yeah, They need to know about Tishido, and here's the legend. I got to know Antonio Fragos Fraguas, who is head of the Folklore Museum in Santiago, and he was a wonderful storyteller and a good source and, you know, Gallegan to the core. This is the story that he told me, and then I heard it repeated by other people, why everybody should go to Tishido. Thousands of pilgrims travel each year to Santiago de Compostela, to visit the sepulcher that they believe holds the bones of Jesus' apostle James. After St. James and St. Andrew were both martyred, the two met in heaven. And Andrew complained to Jesus, saying, Look, we were all apostles together, and all these people come to see James in Compostela, and nobody goes to the shrine set up for me at Toshido. <laughs> And Jesus said, don't let that concern you. 
I'll make a decree. If people don't go visit your shrine in Toshido while they are alive, they will have to journey there in the body of another creature after they've died. And St. Andrew was satisfied. (laughs) So, to avoid being conveyed in the body of a toad or ant or goat or honeybee, Gaikins prefer to take the windy roads along the rocky northern coast of Galicia to Dishido, preferably on a sunny summer day. Now, I have a story that on one of our trips to Tishido, we met the Cunqueros family. And the mother told us, while we were there, that before they left for Tishido, she sent her son Dositeo to the cemetery, where his uncle Eduardo's crypt was buried. And she told him to take a stick, hit the door of the crypt, and say loudly, Get ready, uncle! We're going to Tishido in the morning! (laughs) And the next day, they saved a place in the car for Eduardo. And on the way, they took care to avoid injuring any animal of any size who might be traveling in the direction of Tishido. Because you don't know, it could hold the soul of another relative or a friend. And then when they got there, after the church service and they had a meal up on the side of the hill... They put out food for Uncle Eduardo, and surprise, surprise, the next morning it was gone. (laughs) Now, not just that. You have to go because, have you been, right? Yes, I have. Okay, so you're fine. (laughs) But you need to tell your your friends to be sure to get to Tishido. Once they're there, during the festivals of St. Andrew, they kiss the reliquary, which contains, they say, one of Andrew's bones. And then they go down the fountain toward the sea, and from one of the three spigots, they then fill jars with water to help take home and then help cure future illnesses. They also, this is a second story that we heard, they might snap off a twig from a nearby yew tree, which is called the herba de namorar, or love herb, To give, oh, let's say you've got a cousin who isn't married yet, and they're worried about her being single, so they'll take this twig off. And we bought a little statue of St. Andrew, and it had a little cup next to it, so you could put the water in the cup, and you could put the herba de nomorar in the top of St. James's head and take it home. They would help cure you if you were ill later because you have this water and then you have the piece of a U branch to help somebody fall in love. And then, after all that, then they would go share their picnic on the grassy slopes above the village where they could look down on the stone island in the sea in the shape of a boat that, some say, that was the boat used by St. Andrew when he visited Galicia. You can see that all the important people go to Galicia. (laughs) No kidding. When we were asked by our friends back in the U.S., they'd say, do people really believe these stories? And we say, tread lightly on the border between fact and fiction, between myth and folklore, between religion and superstition. You never know. It's better to be safe than sorry, because what some call superstition could be somebody else's religion, 
and your grandmother's soul could be inside that honeybee that now hovers around the sweet cookies for sale outside the Tishito Church. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, because in another article, you described Galithian's faith as being mixed with selective skepticism. What insights did you draw about how faith operates in Galithia? Well, our landlady, whose pseudonym in our research is Maite, she would listen to us talking to dinner over these curative legends that we'd heard, particularly the time that we went to Chishido and we came back and we were having dinner. We were telling her about this. And she would pound on the table saying, this is what I believe. I see this table. I can believe in it. But she'd asked us to bring a vase of the holy healing water from Tushido. <laughs> so believing, skepticism, yes. Faith, yes. She said, I'm Catholic, of course. But I don't believe these stones can cure illnesses. I'll believe those miracles when I see them out in the calle, in the street. But when we asked Martha this about it just recently, she said, well, although people don't go to church regularly, they like keeping the traditions and in the bottom of their hearts, they believe in the Virgen del Carmen for fishermen and the Virgen de los Milagros, the miracle virgin. And they entrust their lives to the Virgin or other saints and beg for their protection. So maybe on the surface it's skepticism, but deep down it's faith. One other aspect of folk culture and belief that I wanted to ask you about is witches in Galician folk culture. Because a lot of people walking will see tourist paraphernalia that's associated with witches and wonder what that relationship is with Galicia or Spain. So can you describe that? It's even on a plate that we brought home. It says, I don't believe <laughs> in witches, but they exist. <laughs> I mean, there's that faith and skepticism at the same time. One of the stories that I heard that I wanted to share, and it has to do with the Santa Compagna, we heard a lot of stories about them and individual experiences they had with these. The Santa Compagna, I suppose, sainted companions, but they're ghosts who each night roam from the church to the neighborhoods. One night, our friends Dolores and Domingo were having Ribeiro wine and some Aguardiente, a very strong local brandy at our apartment, and we asked them about the Santa Compagna. This is Domingo's story. He said, after playing cards all evening, my father was walking home with a friend. You've seen how men carry the umbrellas on their backs with the handle hooked in their collars? Yes, well, he had his umbrella like that, when all of a sudden there was a huge ball of light that came between him and his friend. It really scared him. But he wasn't sure whether to believe it or not. Yet when he got home, he saw that his umbrella and the side of his jacket were burned to ashes. And he said, my father said, it was the Santa Compagna. So who knows? The Santa Compagna, like the witches, can do good things and sometimes some troublesome things. So... Santa Compagna are particularly found at crossroads. And you can imagine that if it's night and you're walking, maybe you get confused about which way to go. And sometimes the Santa Compagna will help you, show you which way you need to go. And I do think that Maite, like most Gallegas, 
they make a distinction between the supernatural, that is, witches, evil eyes, ghosts, stones that heal, and what they consider natural occurrences. So she told us not to go outside in March without a head covering. I go, why is that? She says, you'll get sick. The witches will get you, so you have to have your head covered. Oh, (laughs) well, in a way it makes sense. After six months of clouds and cold and rain, which we experienced, Gaigans would finally see blue sky, feel the warm sun, and in her experience, overdo it by going out without a head covering and they get sick. So she pours a healthy dose of skepticism on authority and things not directly experienced, but underneath there is a faith that buries her. I'd like to wrap up by asking you a little bit about Santiago de Compostela because you lived there Mm -hmm. at this really fascinating moment in time after Franco, but before this huge resurgence in the pilgrimage. Around 300,000 people walked into Santiago this year. Whoa, i got to write that down. (laughs) 300,000. Oh, my God. It's true. There are dozens of hostels for pilgrims around the town. The entire city is really just built at this point around accommodating these hordes of walkers. What was it like in 1982 when you were there? And again in 1990-91, there weren't very many. There were groups that would come through that had obviously walked together, and you'd see them, and they were there for a little while, and then they'd go on, and there wouldn't be any for a while. We experienced life as the Santiago people lived it. We enjoyed the tuna. I don't know if they still have those, but they're young men from the university who would sing under the alcove in the big square, the Obradoiro. The students would make extra money from tourists or from anybody walking by it. It's one of our strongest memories of the evenings. The only day there were loads and loads of people Then the 25th of July was St. James Day, and it was a Sunday. And they built a framework that looked like a Moorish castle. They built it out of wood and then burned it. The idea is Catholicism championed over the Moors. That's the whole point of Santiago Matamoros. There were tourists, but our experience was life in Galicia, and we were the only ones who spoke English. Yeah, if you go back, you will see a very different place. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing the stories with me. I think there are a lot of people who are going to listen and be envious of the experience you had getting to see these places at a time when they were so much less visited. Yes, I feel lucky about that. In preparing this episode, I found my way to a dissertation written by Rachel Jean Gulish titled The Rediscovery of Galicia in the Revival of the Camino de Santiago. It's a fantastic piece. It's well worth tracking down. Gulish's central point is that the external perception of Galicia has shifted profoundly in late 20th century pilgrimage accounts. The portrayal is far less rosy in earlier writings, particularly after the initial description in the Codex Calixtinus. A 15th century account characterizes Galicia as a desierto, filled with poor, miserable people. In 1494, Dr. Hieronymus Munzer of Nuremberg characterized Gallegos as a, quote, poor sign and lazy people. 
Gulish quotes the Galician writer Miguel Ancho Murado, who speculates, quote, It is possible that Galicia was, during these centuries, the poorest place in all of Western Europe. It doesn't get better anytime soon. Gulish offers an extended quote in Spanish from a Salamancan writer about Galicians. I'll share the Google Translate version, because it's funnier that way. Quote, he was fat of clapper with a good bream by tongue, dole of pronunciation, and a boyuno, cowbell, by mouth. He had a worm's hair, but so rabid that it didn't pass from the back of his neck, leaving a pair of big ears as big as two Portuguese booties to shame. End quote. The English traveler Richard Ford had such an appalling characterization that I will not repeat it here. For centuries, then, Galicians were viewed from the outside not simply as impoverished, but defective, ignorant, lazy, immoral, uncharitable, and hostile. It's ugly stuff. All of Galicia was painted with the same broad brushstroke. As Gulish transitions to 1990s-era pilgrim journals, though, a new story is told, one in which Galicia is praised for being frozen in time and pristine. It's an enchanting, unchanged since creation quality. Gulish explains that it offers walkers an escape from modernity and an embrace of the magical. It's good, of course, that the heinously offensive interpretations have mostly fallen by the wayside. But there's also a danger here for non-Galithian pilgrims, namely that we glorify a life as idyllic that remains challenging, to impose a reading that, while flattering in its own way, is also badly misinformed. Galicia is a setting for the culmination of our journey, a stage on which our performative pilgrimage ends, or, if you prefer Alexander John Shia's view, reaches the turnaround point. We would do well, though, to remember that it is much more than that to many others. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Sharif Gemi for speaking with me. While his book, Galicia, A Concise History, is currently out of print, Used copies are available, and an ebook version is hopefully coming soon. Thanks as well to Kristen Valentine. Her writings are available in academic journals, encyclopedias, and print anthologies. And I'll have titles and links available in the production notes online. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.